we have some children around here. We have hundreds of children in our church, and we're so thankful for our children's ministry and what they do to disciple children. This last Sunday, they had an exercise where they gave to the kids a piece of paper that uh, asked them, you know, when I grow up, I want to serve Jesus by being a, and then they could fill in the blank, and could actually draw a picture of what they would be. Absolutely adorable. All of them were. Every family and every child's were. Let me make that clear. Don't have time to show all of them, but I just thought, let's just kick it off with a few of these. Just a, a little window into the children of our church. So here we have, uh, when, I'm, when I grow up, I want to be a doctor that serves Jesus. I don't know if you can see it there. It says, uh, don't worry, uh, this won't hurt a bit. You'll get a, a sticker, okay? So <laughs> apparently this child has heard that a few times. Next one. Next one. All right. When I grow up, I want to be a Batman that serves Jesus. Okay. All to the glory of God, I guess. So maybe, who knows? Next when I grow up, I want to be a dentist that serves Jesus. Open wide. Can you see it uh, saying there? Okay, next one. When I grow up, I want to be a paleontologist. Okay, next one. And we're ending on this one appropriately, don't you think? When I grow up, I want to be a missionary that serves Jesus. So it seems like the right one to end on there. But uh, I put these up here because it's so helpful when you're young to be thinking about what you want to be someday. And that can be a meandering vision, of course. But in order to become what you want to be, you have to make certain changes today. Like if the goal is to be there, then you have to live today in a way, you know, to get there. So... Uh, if you want to be a dentist someday, then you better, better be pretty good at some of those biological sciences. And if you want to be a paleontologist today, then you better pay attention in your history class. And spiritually speaking, the same principle applies to all of us. Whatever we hope to be, whatever we hope our future to be, how we live today and the values and the priorities and the direction of our life today will in large measure, measure determine what our tomorrow is going to be like. And for us as a church as well, we could say we want to be, a, you know, when, when our church grows up, what kind of church do we want to be? Well, we've laid out some things that we want to be as a church. And for us to ever get there, we could all, we could all just talk about how wonderful it would be to be like that, but how we live today and how we serve today and how we shape our church and our ministry and our lives and our families and our small groups today will determine whether we ever get there. And that is why you can pine all you want for tomorrow, but today is the day. Now is the time when these kinds of changes and commitments will get us to where we hope to be someday. Now, I'm talking today primarily to Christians. If you are not a Christian today, this message, and I can't say that it doesn't apply to you, but, but 
Most of all, the thing that I would like you to be considering is not how can you someday inherit a, a, a uh, reward from the Lord Jesus. Right now, I want you to get into heaven in the first place. And for that to happen, this is the message of the gospel, that Jesus came into this world. He died on the cross for our sins. He died in our place. He died the death we couldn't die. He died a perfect death. He died a holy death. He died for our sins. And by doing that in his resurrection, now there is a way that all of us can know that our sins are forgiven and that we have eternal life. And the message for the, for the not yet Christian is to repent and receive salvation by faith in Christ. And so if you're not a Christian today, that's what I'd really like you to be thinking about. But for those that are Christians, and if you're a member of our church, you've at least professed to be a Christian, then it is really important that we think about tomorrow. Not just the tomorrow of our church, but the eternal tomorrow of our eternal existence. And Paul writes a letter to a church in Corinth that chronically thought certain things in there today were really important, and they weren't that important. And they'd fight about it, and they'd get all rancorous about it. And then there were the things that were really important that for some reason those Corinthian Christians didn't really think about that much and lived as if it was no big deal. And Paul writes this letter to correct their thinking and to get them living and thinking for the things that actually matter. And he puts out his own life and example uh, for them to follow and says, this is, he says basically, this is how I do it and this is how you should do it. And I'm in chapter 9, verse 19, truly one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I have preached on this before here, and I plan on preaching on it many times in the years ahead, because I think it so well summarizes a church and a Christian that is getting it right and is understanding what the purpose of life is. So here's what he writes. This is verse 19. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being under the, the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable Now, Paul here states that he is free from all, and what he means by that is, and he describes this earlier in the chapter, that as an apostle, he had a right to expect monetary support from those that were receiving spiritual blessing from the gospel. But he says, you know what, I've, said, I've decided I'm not going to accept that, and you may know that he was a tent maker, he would make tents, and he would supply for his own needs. His motive in doing that, though, was not selfishly to be sort of like free from everybody, I get to do my own thing. No, he says, the reason that I do that is that now I'm not obligated to anybody, I'm not beholding to anybody, 
I am free now to become whatever I need to be in order to reach people for Christ. He says, I've made myself a servant to all. Okay, nothing binds him. He's not beholding to anybody. And his desire ultimately is gospel effectiveness in his life. Okay, that I might win more of them. Notice that. Win more of them. Win what? He's talking about winning people, winning them evangelistically to where they bow the knee and they trust in Christ and they become a Christian. That's why he is doing this. I think Paul would be pretty excited about the more part of more and better because he gave his life to more. But how does he do this? And this is the intriguing part of this text is how he goes about doing this. And he says here that he views cultural, uh, he views culture as a bridge to building gospel rapport and gospel witness with people. And you'll notice that he, he just rattles off a list here of different categories of cultural people. Okay, so he says here uh, that I, you know, to the Jews I became as a Jew. And you'll notice the list here. Jews, those under the law, those outside the law, and the weak. Okay, so who are the Jews? These are ethnic Jews, by birth Jews. He seeks to reach them. He builds bridges with them. He says here also those that are under the law. Okay, under the law would be not just Jews by birth, but Jews by practice, religiously. They are practicing the Old Testament law. They are uh, religious Jews. He says then those outside the law. Okay, this refers to Gentiles. These are people that are, they're not Jews by birth. They're not practicing in Old Testament Judaism. They are, they are outside that religion and that ethnicity. This is, this is Gentiles, okay, broadly speaking. So he says, when I am with Gentiles, I will try to build a bridge with them. And you can go to Acts 17 as a great example of how he did this at Mars Hill, where he was there with those Greek philosophers, okay? He doesn't say, turn your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter whatever. He says, hey, by the way, on the way into town, I saw a t an altar to the unknown God. That God is who I declare to you. And proceeds to quote from, not the Old Testament, but some of their own poets. These were the rock stars of their day. It'd be like us quoting you two or something with somebody. He just pulls from their culture, their awareness, and builds a bridge with them. By the way, if you're looking at the list and saying, okay, which is our category? We are mostly seeking to reach people who are outside the law. And let's be honest, most of the people we're talking about are way outside the law. Think about this last month in our country and the angst that has been going on with all of the sexual harassment type issues and how even this week, front page all week long, was all about a sexual, moral, and sexual conduct. And I don't know if you feel the tension that is going on because our society, there's this ancient conscience in them that wants to say, that's wrong, you shouldn't do it. And yet, they're trying to build a morality while at the same time denying the existence of a moral God. So why is it wrong? Why is anything wrong? They have no ultimate basis for that because there is no ultimate moral transcendent standard. 
But we, of course, believe in a moral God and morality and a God who says this is right and wrong, and he will judge us by that someday. To the weak I became weak. Okay, this is contextually, I won't get into all the details here, but he's spent all this time talking about people who used to go to the temple and they used to worship there, and then they became Christians. And anything associated with the temple, even meat that was offered to an idol there, was like to them a reminder of the old way of life. And so he willingly sets aside freedom that he has to in that category in order to reach people who that's their sort of their conscience weakness and he doesn't want to let that be something that gets in the way of sharing the gospel with them and then he has this brilliant summary verse in verse 22 he says i have become all things to all people that by all means i might save some now if you just took that one verse and said that's the ultimate standard in truth You could say, well, then we'll compromise anything in order to get there. And that is not what Paul is saying here. In fact, the whole letter of of this whole letter is basically him rebuking the Corinthians for their wrong thinking about lots of these different categories. And Paul was never somebody who said, let's compromise the gospel, let's compromise doctrine, let's compromise morality. You read the rest of his letters, and you'll see, like, I have one example in Galatians. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Okay, so this is not a compromising uh, apostle. And he is not saying that, hey, by any means, we'll do anything. We'll get like just totally crazy, throw everything out the window in order to reach. No, 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 no. He's not talking about that. What he is talking about is he's talking about cultural flexibility for gospel purposes. The church is called to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The gospel is grounded in the eternal nature of God. They do not change. But there are things that we can flex, stretch, in order to reach the hearts of people, or to say it this way, 1 Corinthians 9 isn't about moving doctrinally towards the belief of the lost, but rather moving relationally towards the heart of the lost, and loving them enough to sort of set aside your own thing in order to reach them. And even Paul, he's an apostle. I mean, if there's somebody that could go, you know what, I'm an apostle and I'm not flexing to you, it would be that guy, right? And yet, even an apostle says, I set aside my freedom in order to love and to reach the lost, in order to reach people for Christ. Now you say, well, why would he do that? And Paul here now gives three reasons why flexing in sort of the the non-critical categories, why flexing and cultural flexibility is uh, is, is what we're supposed to do. Look at verse 22, again, this, this wonderful verse. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Why, Paul, why should we, why should we care? Why should we continue to try? Why should we be constantly evaluating what we're doing and how we're doing it and seeing if it's as effective as it can be? And the answer that Paul would give is to win people to Christ to win more of them, to save some of them. Paul's not here saying, hey, if we do it right, everybody bows the knee to Jesus. It's never been that way. The gospel is foolishness to people apart from and without the Holy Spirit. 
But humanly speaking, stretching ourselves and flexing into the life and the culture of somebody in a non-moral compromising category with a heart and the goal to reach them for Christ is a Christian virtue and is modeled by the Apostle Paul and Jesus as well. What price, friends, can we put on the eternal soul of any person? What what cost can you put on saving somebody from hell forever? I think, and I've said this before, I think if, if this little monitor here became a window into eternity and we saw heaven and hell, how many things that right now are weighing on our hearts and we think are super important would we realize I'm like living for something that doesn't matter in the end. And how many things that easily get glossed over and forgotten and all of that, all of a sudden we'd be like, whoa, that is what is really important. I need to change my life. And Paul here gives us one of those big things. This calls us to go to them with language and love that speaks to their hearts. We want to think, oh, they need to flex to us. No, I think he's saying here we need to flex to them. I take that from the text, do you see that? He doesn't say in there, we do everything we can in order for them to become like us and then they get saved. No, no, we're the ones that do the flexing here. We do the reaching. I was recently rattled when I found out that one of my former neighbors died young man. In fact, I've told the story. You know the story where I, tell, I say, I was talking to this guy who's complaining about everything going on in culture, and I said to him, it's almost as if the world needs a savior. I've told that story many times. The guy that died is the guy I said that to. Rattled me inside. I'm like, he's young. Where is he today? One commentary says this, he is not concerned with staying within his own comfort zone, but about overemphasizing artificial barriers inhibiting those who have not yet responded to the gospel from coming into the life of Christ. We flex, we set aside our rights and our things and all that, we know we flex to them in order to save some. A few weeks ago I happened to, I, I went into the children's wing and I went into one of the rooms and I look, and here is a business or a bank executive in our church on his knees and on the ground, rolling around, ministering to children. Now, what was especially beautiful about it was he was still wearing his banker clothes, <laughs> the little logo, like right here. Went right from work directly there to minister to some children. Now, I don't know about you, but when you go to the bank, I I have no recollection of any bank or any bank I've ever been in where I saw, you know, sometimes they'll have a little nursery area, kids area. I've never seen the CEO rolling around on the ground with the kids in the bank. Like, I just never have seen that. But in the church, there are no executives. In the church, there are no executives. We're all the same, right? We're all in the same category. And there are no people, even little people, 
who are beneath us and to whom we cannot humble ourselves. And I wonder as I talk about this, is there any true sort of ringing in your hearts right now? Because what do we celebrate at Christmas if not the fact that the ultimate executive got on his knees and rolled around on the ground with us? In fact, listen to the words in light of that of the, of the angel announcing to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior, who by the way is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. You know what's shocking about this? Is Christ the Lord? Okay, wonderful. The Lord has come. Where do we find him? Where do we see him? He is in a manger. What? (laughs) You don't see bank executives rolling around on the ground playing with children, and you certainly don't see the Lord of the universe laying in a manger. And if we could interview that little baby, and if he would have spoken in that moment and said to him, if the shepherds whispered over the edge of that little cradle, that manger, why did you do this? I wonder if he might say, I've become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. In fact, it'd be a sad sad church and a sad Christian that would celebrate Christmas but won't flex themselves to reach their neighbor and their community because that's what Christmas is about. He says, I do this to save some. I want to win more. Secondly, he goes on to verse 23, in order to share in gospel blessing. What is Paul referring to? Let me read the verse, verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings, okay? Share with them in its blessings. What is Paul referring to here? The gospel has massive blessings, doesn't it? Isn't it great to be a Christian? Okay. Are you with me here this morning? Isn't it great to be a Christian? Or to say, isn't it great to not be a non-Christian? Another way to say it. Whatever blessings go along with being a non-Christian, They are very temporary fleeting. The blessings that we have as Christians are now and forever. And Paul here, he has this motivation in his ministry that he wants other people that he cares about to share in the blessings of the gospel that he himself enjoys. And we do this with things that we, with people we love and with things that we like. The first gift that I gave to my oldest daughter was a plastic basketball hoop with suction cups. It was either the first gift or I think it was her first Christmas gift. A basketball hoop with suction cups that you can put in the bathtub and suction it to the edge of the bathtub and you can shoot baskets while you're in the bathtub. Now, why did I give that to her? Because pretty much my whole life, I've loved basketball. I have a daughter now. Let's get a hoop up. And let's start shooting. Because I love this. I'm sure she's going to love it too. And I hope that she would. To share on that level is a joy to me. 
You know the deepest longing of my heart? Is that she would receive Christ as her Savior. I want to enjoy forever an eternal life. I want to enjoy that with her. Way more than I care about the basketball hoop shooting. I want that to share with her in the gospel blessings. Deepest longing of my heart. I want you to come to faith. I really do. Every one of you. But more than you, I want my, my daughter to come to faith. And the more that we love people, the greater the desire that we will have to share Jesus with them and to reach them. Thirdly, he says to receive a reward. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He's writing to the Corinthians. Corinth was the host of the Isthmian Games, which was rivaled the Olympic Games in Athens. I mean, we, it is feasible to think that instead of choosing the Olympic Games to go on in modern, the modern era, they could have possibly chosen the Isthmian Games. And that's what we would be hearing about all the time on NBC, the upcoming Winter Isthmian Games. It was a big, big deal. Corinth was a sports city, and I think Paul was a sports guy. If you read, oftentimes he uses sports and athletics to illustrate spiritual truth. And here we have him referring to running, okay, the basic uh, sporting event of running. And he points out the obvious. Everybody runs, okay? The gun goes off, nobody stands there. Like, everybody's running. Everybody's running. But only one person wins, only one person receives the prize. Apparently in the first century, there were no trophies for participation. Okay. And what he highlights here is that these athletes use self-control to bring everything in their life towards this one goal of winning the prize, winning the race and winning the prize. Everything else is submitted to that primary goal, and that the race is a microcosm of what their whole life has been. They strain, they reach, they press towards that finish line. I grabbed one photo I thought was kind of a cool picture of this. I'm sure you've, you've seen similar things where they're all running, they're all trying, they're doing everything they can in order to win the prize. And Paul makes this point. He says, these athletes that are heroes, even in the first century, they were tremendous heroes to be a great athlete, much like today. What are they, what are they doing this for? What are they running? All this effort, all this uh, purpose, what, what are they doing it for? They're doing it for a wreath. The, the big prize in the first century was you, you won a, a wreath, something that you put on your head that said you're the winner. Today we have the gold medal as a modern example of that, or perhaps uh, money or that contract for the front of the Wheaties box or whatever it would be, that they are doing everything that they're doing for that ultimate goal. Everything is coming under, they're, they're focusing like a laser, everything in that direction. And Paul makes this great point, he says, and they're doing it for something that's going to pass away. The gold medal, you could probably buy them on eBay 
today. I guarantee you can buy, an e- you can buy a gold medal if you went on eBay today. Somebody's selling some, something somewhere. It passes away. Its value diminishes. He says, but we, what we're doing in gospel ministry, what we're doing in the church is for something that will never pass away. Okay? It is a reward. It is a value. It is a gift from Jesus that will never, ever pass away. And the point is, is if they do what they do, which is this incredible effort for something that will pass away, how much more should we be in it, sweating, straining for something that will never pass away? So perhaps can I ask you the question? Is there a sense about your home, your spiritual life, the effort that you put towards ministry in the sphere that you have, is there any sweat about it? Anybody here stink today because you've been sweating so hard spiritually, putting so much effort into that, that you're, you're almost like a runner pressing for the finish line? And see, from, from my perspective, I think that there is substantial room for improvement in that for us collectively as a church. Now, we've got people that are sweating. You walk by, and just, they, stink, they stink terribly and wonderfully of spiritual effort and work. Praise God for you. I think we have a lot of people that are gunning for the participation trophy Could I say that a biblical church would be one where the collective culture of the church is one of sweating and straining together? Is that a good statement? That we're all in this together, we're pulling together like a massive team for the goal of glorifying Jesus, it's all about him, by reaching the lost with the gospel. Which brings me to, uh, to, to, to more and better. What is more and better? It is many things, but it, it is this for sure. It is our church refusing. It is Bethel Church. Listen to me, everybody. It is Bethel Church collectively, and I hope you individually refusing status quo, refusing as a church to say, Where we are and who we've reached and what we've done is pretty good. And we're just gonna sort of coast now and wait for Jesus to come. It is us refusing to do that. And I'm sure that if we want, we'd say, hey, you know what? Like if I got up and said, hey, everybody, I think we're good. Let's just sort of like dial it down and sort of wait for death or Jesus to come. Here's what would happen in our church. People would still gather next Sunday. People would be here. We'd have thousands of people that would come the next Sunday. It would, we'd just kind of continue with sort of inertia, a kind of little bit of momentum. We would continue to be a sizable church with very nice people who do this or that. But imperceptibly, there would be something that would die in our church and die in your heart. We would almost imperceptibly, we would go from pressing forward on offense to just playing defense. Watch a football game when a a team goes into just 
trying not to lose mode, what happens? They lose. They lose. And churches that move into that like, hey, look what we've done. We're sort of good. They lose. Now, it could take decades for them to lose. But the congregation slowly, with negative momentum now, begins to focus on things that aren't that important, and there's a culture now of infighting and power struggles and issues about this or that, where the church used to be about reaching their community, now they're inward looking. And the building becomes the trophy of the past because there is not life now. And how do we maintain life now? We become all things to all men. And we continue to press forward that we might win some for Christ. We keep that mission and vision before us. And I just want you to know, I just think this is such a key moment for us as a church. It is. Are we pressing forward? Are we doing more? Or are we in neutral? And as your pastor, I'm in front of you saying, pedal to the metal. Pedal to the metal. Amen? Hey, pedal to the metal. I got one life. I got one life. This is it. And I'm living it with you. This is our moment. This is our time. What people in the past did, I don't know. I, I don't care, but that's up between them and Jesus. And what happens someday here, I care about for sure, but I'm not responsible for that. I am responsible for now. And I am personally tremendously excited about this. I am very excited about this. I'm excited with my heart. I'm excited with my dollars. I am excited with my prayers. And more and better, it's much more than financial support. I mean, we're, we got days ahead, we need launch teams, and we need volunteers, and we got work days, and we got uh, things that your expertise is gonna be perfect for what we need, and we got all these things. Th those are all someday. That's not today. You know what we need right now? We need financial support. That's what this day needs right now. We need financial support, and that's why we're talking about this. Will you get behind this with your money? That's the bottom line. I mean, I can kind of try to talk nice about it and all that, but that's kind of the bottom line, isn't it? Just shooting straight. Are we gonna be able to do this or not? And doing it is going to require God's people supporting it. And part of the beauty of more and better is that by investing in more and better, you're investing in a whole constellation of wonderful gospel things, okay? It's like a mutual fund. You buy a mutual fund, you've got investment in a lot of different categories. With more and better, it's the same. By giving to more and better, I'm supporting campus planning and maybe church planning. I'm supporting inner city kids and their education and their spiritual lives. I'm creating capacity for young people to hear the gospel, I'm making room for more disciples to hear Bible preaching and participate in worship. And I'm not just doing it in one church, in one campus, in one location. I'm doing it across Northwest Indiana. Now you might have a way to, that you could figure out where you could do it individually, support this ministry and this ministry and this ministry and this church and this thing and that. But by giving to more and better, you're supporting all of it at once. And I like that. I like that. And why are we doing it? We're doing it for Jesus, okay? 
It's all about him. It's love of him and love of people and to personally rejoice as my church and my dollars bear fruit. I mean, to think of it this way, to think that when I hear someday of a teenager that comes to Verge and receives Christ, that I had skin in that game. Okay? When I see folks that are baptized because they, there was room for them to come under the hearing of the gospel and the preaching of the word and they were saved, I can say I had skin in that one right there. When there is a future woman that stands up here and shares her testimony in a language other than English, and we have a translator here who's translating it, and she shares about how Bethel Church, whatever it is, God used to reach her for Christ, I can think I had skin in that game too. And to have the joy of seeing God bear fruit, gospel blessings. And so I just want to say, as you pray and consider being a part of this, would you ask that rather than wasting dollars on this thing, that, that, that thing that won't last, do something eternally significant so that by all means we might save some. To God be the glory. Amen.